What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, you're listening to The Sociology Show, a podcast about absolutely anything to do with the wonderful world of sociology. Whether you're a teacher, a lecturer, a student, or just taking a passing interest, this podcast will look at a range of issues from social class, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religion, crime, education, and anything else that sociology has to offer. My name is Matthew Wilkin, and each episode I will speak to someone working in the field of sociology and let them explain all about their own interests, their research, and their experiences. So, put your earphones in, turn the volume up, and let's be sociology geeks together, eh? Hello and welcome to The Sociology Show. The Sociology Show podcast is brought to you in association with tutor to you Sociology, the exam performance specialist for A-level and GCSE sociology students and teachers. And so you can visit their website, which is at tutortoyou.net forward slash sociology. And once you're on there, you can pick up revision guides, revision videos, flashcards, and everything else that you need for your A-level or GCSE sociology studies. And so on to this episode. And my guest for this episode is Professor Nicola Ingram. Nicola, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Thanks. I, I always ask people to start by saying a little bit about who you are and what you do, just so the listeners, I'm sure some of them are already aware, but just in case they're not. Um, okay. So I'm Nicola Ingram and I am a professor of sociology of education at Manchester Metropolitan University. And before I was in academia, I um, was a school teacher. And I was a secondary school art teacher. And that was in Belfast, wasn't it? It was in Belfast. And then when did you come over to to England? I came to England in 2010 to work on the Pair Peers project at Bristol University. And um, I was finishing my PhD at the time. Right. And you've you've moved around a little bit in England, haven't you? I know you're in Manchester at the moment. You've been, been working at other universities as well? Yes, I like to travel. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I've been at the University of Bath and I've been at Lancaster University and Sheffield Hallam. And I moved to Manchester Metropolitan during lockdown. So I um, haven't actually been <laughs> on campus and I haven't actually met my colleagues face to face. Oh dear, dear. That's a true state of where we are at the moment, isn't it? And um, uh, <laughs> I'm so interested. You're, you're an art teacher. Did you actually do sociology yourself at, at degree or, or were you in the art world? No, I'm, a, I'm an accidental sociologist. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I went to art college. I did an art degree. I was a teacher for a number of years in secondary schools. And that's really, I suppose, where my sociological imagination got fired up. I was working in two different schools in Belfast. They were both in the same kind of area of Belfast and they both had students, pupils from from the same neighbourhoods, but one was a grammar school and one was a secondary school. 
and they were both all boys schools and so you had these young men from the same neighborhoods um with very very different experiences of education and different prospects all within the one education system so that kind of really got me thinking so that kind of sparked your interest in in social class and i know you're interested in gender as well obviously within education yeah it 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 didn't i wouldn't say it sparked my interest in social class because i already had that interest it just kind of it just kind of illuminated it a little bit i guess the other thing about the two schools is that my family had attended the school so my dad had attended the secondary school and my brother had attended the grammar school mm. and um also i was from that neighborhood and i had experiences as a working class person in that system um and and so all of that was going on and it was just a kind of moment where it all came together and i i went back to college <laughs> went back to university to do a master's at queen's university and um and i just couldn't stop i couldn't stop reading and couldn't stop thinking and i couldn't i just got really bitten by the research bug mm. and i know once you you started that reading i know one theorist who definitely influenced you in terms of pierre, pierre bourdieu but who else were you kind of reading who really inspired you at the time um I couldn't stop reading Diane Ray's work, of course, yes. and Bev Skeggs. And um, I just find, I find a book, um, Class Matters, and it's working class women's perspectives on social class. And I just, that book just really, just really spoke to me. And it was just really nice to find ways of, thinking about and, and and just people putting words to thoughts that were sort of floating around somewhere in my head that I couldn't really articulate. And, and that book just really helped me to frame some of my thinking around class and my own experiences and around what I was trying to explore in my PhD research at the time. Should we go on to that then? Should we go on to your own research? For perhaps those that don't know a huge amount about you, what are, what are your kind of main areas of research, if you like? Um, well, as I said, I'm a sociologist of education. So my research is generally around education, but more lately it's been around that transition from education to work. It's underpinned by issues of inequality and I'm interested, I, I, I started off with an interest in, in social class because that was my lived experience and so that brought me into the world of sociology and, and, and social inequalities and I became increasingly interested in, in gender as well and intersectionality and um, in a book that I'm currently working on with other people I've been trying to think more broadly about issues of intersectionality of race ethnicity class and gender um, and, and my work I suppose spans the education system I'm interested in in all of these issues not just uh, at one particular level within the education system I'm interested in um, how inequalities play out and work through all in all aspects of education right from primary school through to through higher education further education and, and actually into the workplace mm. and one of the questions i often get this is a real common question from a-level students by the way they would say what type of sociologist is ingram 
You know, that's quite often a question, you know, because obviously there's, there's elements of Marxism in your work, elements of feminism. Do you kind of label yourself as a particular type of sociologist at all? <laughs> that's a funny question. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's a, actually, and, and I, I, yeah, I suppose most people do resist being labelled, don't they? So, yeah. um, I guess I'm, I, yes, I see myself as a feminist. Um, I also see myself as a Borgesian. I guess that's really all I can say on that. It's interesting is that students get obsessed with what type of sociologist is such and such, but, um, you know, it, it goes beyond just putting yourself into one box or one label, I'm sure. Could we start with uh, your kind of methodology, if you like, uh, Nicola? What, what kind of methods do you adopt when you conduct your research? I guess I'm a qualitative researcher um, for a start. I really like complexity and I recently um, have been trying to develop a survey for a bit of research that I want to do. And I just find it so difficult because I cannot think in a very um, black and white way. I, I really want, I don't want the yes or no answer. I don't want a binary answer. I want a really complex, detailed answer. And so initially I've been drawn to, I was drawn in my PhD to ethnographic research approaches. Sure, I want to see every aspect of it. I want to have in-depth conversations and I I just, I just want to know. And so I think those sorts of approaches um, work for me. I'm interested in the macro level, Mm. um, but I can't divorce the macro level and the kind of structural level of inequality from what's going on at at an institutional level and then what's going on at individual level. So I feel like ethnographic approaches encompass all of that. Yeah. Do you tend to use um, unstructured interviews, observations, for example? Um, I, I'm a big fan of semi-structured interviews. Yeah. I like to have a, a kind of plan, but I like to be open to to it being, being somewhat driven a little bit by the agenda of the interviewee. Um, so it kind of let some things unfold. I'm also very interested in visual methods and that would connect back to my past as a, an art teacher. Mm. Um, but I really like the way that using visual methods can give people a lot of scope for thinking and reflecting before they have to answer questions. And I really like the way that using visual methods helps to facilitate a real in-depth response from, from research participants. Yeah, that's really interesting. Combining your art background with your sociological background, I really like that. Um, so what I wanted, wanted to chat to you about is obviously you've got sort of two main areas within the, the study of education, social class and gender. Should we start with class? Is that okay? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you want to let people know what are kind of your, your main arguments and discussions in relation to social class and education? I think my starting point for, for my arguments around class or for my research around class was really thinking about symbolic violence and thinking about the ways in which working class young people can be positioned, judged and valued within the education system in ways that do not facilitate their learning and, in fact, the opposite of facilitation, the ways that they kind of 
symbolic violence operates to kind of shut down engagement and shut down connection and shut down belongingness. So I'm quite interested in thinking about the way in which working class culture is misrecognised within the education system and then how that means that for working class young people there has to be this quite complex negotiation of their sense of identity and educational success and how sometimes the two are not easily married and I'm interested in in how that process unfolds and what goes on in that navigation and of course then in thinking about things that can be done um, to kind of support working class young people in education and to 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 push back on the systems that may oppress them because i'm i'm really interested in this as well because i've spoken to a lot of academics you know who consider themselves working working class academics if you like and they're all coming along the same sort of line that this kind of uncomfortableness of sitting in education and an unawareness of what further and higher education is it seems to start really early in education for many working class children yeah I don't, I don't know if it's a lack of awareness. I think, I think increasingly young people are very much aware of the possibilities of education. And, um, you know, with shifts in the labour market as well, they, they, they kind of looked at education as a, as a means towards a better future in yeah. the absence of other forms of paid employment. In my study of working class teenage boys in Belfast, I was really looking at, working class success so my sample within that were boys who were on track for being you know on track for success in their GCSE exams and and so I was interested in their navigation of that and their navigation of their own identities and I just what my argument I guess would be that there are things that need to change structurally within the systems of schooling, things that need to change even at the classroom level in terms of interactions and engagement with young people and in terms of the valuation of their their backgrounds and, and their perspectives, their ways of seeing the world rather than um, a kind of model that tries to reshape working class identity to fit with um, the assumed kind of model of um, success in, in education, um, the assumed identities that go alongside success. It's interesting you're saying that, isn't it? Because, you know, even someone like Paul Willis writing almost 50 years ago was saying about how schools have middle class values and middle class teachers. It sounds like not a lot has changed since then. Yeah, I think it's it, it's fairly complex. And I think in this school that the schools where I conducted my research I found it really interesting that the teachers who had actually come from the area themselves and had come from working class backgrounds had a really nice engagement with the students mm. and had a way of communicating with them that they find supportive that they didn't find patronizing that really brought the best out in them and yeah. I thought there was something there about a habitus chime, a connection um, and an understanding and a, an evaluation 
of the young people themselves. And it wasn't coming at education from a patronising point of view. Yeah, I've seen similar. You might be aware of it. There's a, there's a school in Dagenham which um, tried to employ people from the local area with the local accent and many of the teachers are actually ex-pupils as well and their results jumped up because of that habitus the comfortability that that students felt within that environment yeah that's really interesting um i definitely think there's something to be said for that and 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 i guess we you know we take it for granted that in schools that you know that where you have middle class teachers the middle class children have this natural affinity or a kind of uh, their fish and water they have an ease with their communication etc with with people who are from similar backgrounds and and we don't recognize just how difficult it is to be in an environment where you don't naturally fit where you don't feel that sense of ease um, and having to battle with that on top of having to to learn is actually quite significant yeah and, and that's would you say that's highlighted even more that the higher you go up education so once you know if someone went on to do a levels and certainly a degree those differences get highlighted even more i think they can do and of course we have a very complex higher education system in the UK, a very stratified, hierarchical higher education system. So I wouldn't say it's the same across the board. But in a piece of research that I was involved involved in, um, the Paired Peers Project, we looked at the experiences of working class and middle class students at the two universities in Bristol. So one's at Post 92, the University of the West of England, and the other one is um, a Russell Group, the University of Bristol. And initially in the first sort of interviews, we find it really interesting that some of the students who were um, who we were defining as working class based on their parental um, occupations and their family experiences of higher education and some other factors. The, these students were saying to us that they didn't actually feel working class mm. until they came to university. <laughs> and we heard that more from the students from working class backgrounds who went to the, um, the Russell Group University. Yeah, that's quite common, isn't it? The, the comedian Ricky Gervais said exactly the same. He was not aware of his social class until he went to university and heard other people speaking. I think that's quite a common, quite a common theme for many working class students. Yeah, I think so. And I think it can be exacerbated by the type of university that you go to. Hmm. And of course, some universities have a very high proportion of students from from privately educated backgrounds and that can be quite an interesting thing to confront if you haven't met people with that type of privilege before. And so can I ask you Nicola because I'll put the same question to to Diane Ray about um, whether there should be an abolishment of the, of the private school system should should it be one school for all or one type of school state schools only for for individuals? I haven't listened to Diane's interview, <laughs> I imagine. Just yeah, no, that. But, you went on a fantastic yes, I agree with everything that Diane said in that interview, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I, I, I am a, a big proponent of the abolishment of private schools. Um, I don't think that they 
they support a, a fair education system. I'm, I also think that grammar schools should be banned. And yeah, so yeah, I just think that if you have 7% of the population attending private schools, then you're creating a system that's highly unfair. I was going to say that it, it seems impossible to actually get towards some sort of equality the whole time you've got that to, a, a private and state system. Yeah, I think the, I, I, do, I mean, I don't even know where to go with this uh, beyond saying, yes, we should abolish private schools. I mean, for me, it's just so obvious that it creates inequalities and that, um, you know, it, it kind of then has the knock-on effect of creating univer- a university system that is highly stratified and it, it feeds into those hierarchies. And the UK is has got to be the most class-ridden society and, and it's not helped by the education system that, that's constructed around class differences. Yeah, we're we're in agreement with Diane there. If, if people haven't listened to that episode, they should go back and listen to Diane's rant on that very topic. It's very interesting. I'm sure. Thank you, Nicola. That is going to be the end of part one. And in part two, we will tackle the issue of gender. The Sociology Show podcast relies on the kind contributions of sponsorship and donations. If you enjoy the show, then you can help with the hosting costs by donating as little as £5 on the GoFundMe page. Simply visit uk.gofundme.com and search for The Sociology Show. If you can donate, then you will be sent a Sociology Show pen as a small thank you for your continued support of the show. Hello and welcome back to part two of The Sociology Show, where my guest is Professor Nicola Ingram. In part one, we talked about her research on social class. And in this part, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your research on gender in education, Nicola. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I guess I should say from the start that actually I, I can't really separate my work on class and my work on gender. I see them both as being the same thing. Um, one is implicated in the other and, and I think intersection, I think in an intersectional way. And um, so my work, for example, on working class teenage boys in Belfast was about class but it was also about gender so it wasn't just about class in schools in Belfast it was about being working class but being a working class boy and and what that means what is working class masculinity in a city like Belfast with its whole history of the troubles and um, it's, it, its particular brand of of masculinity that has developed over years through access to work and particular types of manufacturing and particular types of of labouring etc. And what what kind of masculinity do you refer to there? Obviously, uh, lots of sociologists refer to a type of masculinity. Do you use any sort of language around that? I I mean, I have worked with Connell's concept of Mm. hegemonic masculinity. And I think that to be if if you're being true to Connell's work you need to really think about masculinity as being context specific and and a form of masculinity a hegemonic form of masculinity as being context specific the neighborhood where my boys lived who were part of the study was a, a very working class neighborhood in Belfast that was very much um had had grown up against a lot of 
adversity um, during the Troubles. And so there would have been quite a bit of unemployment. Um, it was a Catholic community. These men would have been locked out of the main industries um, because they, um, well, because of discrimination, discriminatory practices. And, and so it was a very hard form of masculinity that developed over the years. And, and these boys were, um, were born post ceasefire and were living through a kind of new era. But things hadn't really moved on a terrible amount in terms of masculinity. And so they were grappling with these ideas about education as being the, the, the kind of answer to um, developing forms of work that were, um, that were going to lead to a better future. But that didn't really align well with their, um, the masculinity that was prevalent or hegemonic, I guess, within their neighbourhoods. And so there was this real habitus tug, I've called it, in terms of trying to work their way in the world, work out where they stood and where they were in the world and how they wanted to be and how that worked alongside their families and their communities. And, and, and it was just a really complex process for them. Because I was interested where the, those pressures are coming from. Is it is it from fathers in particular? Is it from friendship groups? Where is that pressure to to meet the kind of hegemonic role? Oh, I, d- I don't think it's um it's necessarily a point or a person or a, or an event. I think it's just in the fabric of everyday living, and and so it becomes hard to to kind of do the separation work that might be necessary in order to think in a different way to think outside of the structures that inform your ways of being and so was there any kind of um negativity you know if, if the boys wanted to go into further and higher education was there any kind of criticism that that might be kind of, kind of like a feminine route out if you like um not in my study mm. um it, it, their high aspirations were very much supported by the school and very much supported by their families. Yeah. Um, I, I really would push back against any discourses around working class lack of aspiration. Yeah. I don't think that working class families are suffering from, from, from that lack. I think there are other structural things going on that can, can become barriers to educational success. Yeah, what what would you say those main barriers or hurdles are, Nicola? So I, th- I think it's really hard to pinpoint barriers to to success. I think that it's never just one thing, or it's never an obvious thing. And it, I mean, if we really had were able to pinpoint those things, then we we wouldn't be dealing with decades and decades mm-hmm. of of you know working class difficulties with the education system. Um, I think one of the main things for me, and I've already mentioned it, is is really about the value of working class culture. And I think creating environments where working class young people can feel um, can feel like themselves. I think that that I know it just sounds like a yeah. really small thing, but I think it's a really really significant thing. And I think that that would be a start. I think there are different barriers at different levels of education. I mean. 
I haven't listened to Diane's interview, but I I would imagine that she's talked about the the, the kind of divisive structures of the education system within the UK and private schooling being one of those divisive structures and grammars in Northern Ireland, the grammar school system is a highly divisive structure. So in Northern Ireland, um, and I like to see my book as, a, as an argument against the grammar school system in Northern Ireland and an argument that can actually contribute to debates in the, the rest of the UK about resurrecting grammar schools. But in Northern Ireland, the um the system is that at age 11 students do an exam and depending on success or failure in that exam they um go to either a grammar school or a secondary school now, in practice what that means is that most middle class people go to a grammar school yes and most working class people go to a secondary school and then the, the system is supposedly meritocratic and so um, can, you know, it, it accepts a few, a few good apples from the working classes and mm-hmm. pulls them along into the grammar system and can help promote social mobility. And it, I just cannot believe that that system exists. Um, it's, it's incredible. It, it, it is a class system of education and and, and, and no one um, is doing anything about it, which is just outrageous. I mean, that, that's the system that was in England in the 40s, isn't it? The tripartite system, yeah. the 11 plus exam. In, I think it was not Butler Education Act 1944 it was introduced. Um, but it's amazing that still goes on in Northern Ireland today. It does. So not only is Northern Ireland divided by um, the Catholic Protestant divide, it's got it's class divide within the education system. Um, and, and schools tend to be, quite well, not tend to be, but quite a lot of schools are actually d- divided by gender. Yes. So girls' schools and boys' schools. So I'm going to ask you a question that I put to Diane as well. But <laughs> um, you, You've already mentioned that the UK in particular is probably classist than nearly anywhere, okay? <laughs> in term, particularly within education. If it were up to you, Nicola, what needs to change? Bar the obvious, you know, the scrapping of private schools, what needs to change significantly to get some form of social class equality within the education system? Well, if we didn't have such a hierarchical system of higher education, then there wouldn't be a need for such a divided system at, at, at the lower levels. Um, what I mean by that is if you if you had a system that was more comprehensive, if you had a higher education system that was more comprehensive, that wasn't about sorting young people at the age of 18 into, into um, you know, different types of institution, then you might not really have the need for, for private education um, because if everyone was going to the same destination, do you think actually in terms of what, what students are learning within the classroom as well, you know, some sociologists criticise the fact that there's a certain amount of snobbery in terms of what we learn, mid, middle class literature, middle class music, etc. Do you think there should be a change there, there as well? The curriculum, if you like. Um, I'm a big fan of a really broad curriculum. And I, I think that, the, you know, all, 
all young people should have access to a real breadth in the curriculum. They should have access to literature and music and, and the arts, and they should have access to um, sciences and languages. More art on the curriculum, I was thinking. <laughs> more creativity. Yeah. I would like more creativity on the on the curriculum, I think. I think what's interesting is that there's been this kind of move to to kind of crush the arts within secondary schools, within state secondary schools. And it's almost become a situation where um, the arts are, are losing their kind of value or their position um, within within kind of government policy. Um, in secondary schools but of course the arts are going to be celebrated and and taught and um, you know resourced really well in private schools and I I fear that we could be moving to a system where secondary schools in England where where comprehensive schools state schools are are really places with a narrow curriculum and the the arts and and the critical subjects are saved for the middle classes or the kind of the, the privately educated middle classes in particular. Yeah, it's, it's really sad, isn't it? When those things get edged out at some comprehensive schools, you know, you're talking about one lesson a week for something to do with art or, or creative thinking. It's quite sad. Yeah, my, my children, um, I was really horrified when I discovered this, um, but they they're on a kind of arts rotation in their school so they move from a block where they might be studying art to a block where they might do cookery to a block where they might do design and technology and they they kind of they don't do those subjects all across the year yeah and as a former art teacher I was <laughs> absolutely flabbergasted by yeah. that and, and a bit incensed actually yeah I can I can imagine you can imagine so Nicola, just to, to finish off, maybe this could be the last question. What are you currently working on? Well, I am currently working on the second book from the Paired Peers Project. And the Paired Peers Project, I don't know if I really talked, I didn't talk too much about it, but it was a project that tracked students from their first day at university right through to graduation and then the second phase of the project tracked this very same people from through their first four years um, post-graduation. So this book that we are working on is based on the second phase of the project and it's looking at the transitions from higher education into the labour market. Excellent, thank you. And when's that due to be published, that one? When I've finished. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Um, no, I think I'm really hoping sometime later this year. Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you, Nicola. And finally, if, if people want to find out more about your work, how can they get in touch? Where, the, where can they read more about you? Well, if people want to get in touch with me, they can email me and I'm also on Twitter. And yeah, I'd be happy to, to answer any questions anyone has. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Nicola. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. The Sociology Show podcast relies on the kind contributions of sponsorship and donations. If you enjoy the show, then you can help with the hosting costs by donating as little as £5 on the GoFundMe page. Simply visit uk.gofundme.com and search for The Sociology Show. 
If you can donate, then you will be sent a Sociology Show pen as a small thank you for your continued support of the show. The Sociology Show podcast relies on the kind contributions of sponsorship and donations. If you enjoy the show, then you can help with the hosting costs by donating as little as £5 on the GoFundMe page. Simply visit uk.gofundme.com and search for The Sociology Show. If you can donate, then you will be sent a Sociology Show pen as a small thank you for your continued support of the show.